Chapter Two of A Man Obsessed by Alan E. Norse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two The news report blatted in Jeff Meyer's ear from the little car radio. The words came through, but he hardly heard them as his eyes watched the huge glass doors of the administration building of the Hoffman Medical Center. No word has yet been received, but it is believed that the Eurasian governments may be in session several hours more in an attempt to stem the inflation. On the home front, the stock market nosedive which resulted from the new Senate taxation bill yesterday leveled off when the Secretary of Corporative Business announced this morning that the government would abandon attempts to enforce the new law, at least for the time being. Secretary Barnes stated that further study of the bill would be undertaken when more pressing governmental problems had been cleared. Jeff snapped off the switch with a snarl. The street passing the center was crowded. Lines of cars moved into and out of the traffic stream from the huge center parking tiers. The building rose high, tier upon tier. Its walls gleamed white in the bright morning sunlight, reflecting brilliant facets of golden light from thousands of polished windows. It was an immense building, sprawling across six perfectly landscaped city blocks, tall trees and cool green terraces setting off the glistening beauty of the architecture. The structure sent tower after tower up from the dingy street below, and at the foot of the towers was a buzz of furious activity. Supply trucks, carrying food and supplies for the twenty-two thousand beds and the people in them and for the additional thirteen thousand people who worked day and night to keep the huge hospital running, moved toward the unloading platforms. The Hoffman Medical Center was an age-old dream which had finally come true. Even those who had conceived it had not realized the tremendous need it would fulfill. From its very inception no expense had been spared. The finest architects had thrown up the shimmering ward towers, turned toward the sun to bring light to the sick and injured who rested and healed within. Equipment unequaled anywhere in the world had filled the center's dressing and surgical rooms. The doctors, nurses, researchers, and technicians who staffed the institution had been gathered from the world over, and all the world had conceded the Hoffman Center its place as leader in the realm of medicine, ever since the cornerstone had been laid that rainy morning in the spring of the year 2085. Twenty-four years had passed since that day, and in those years the Hoffman Center had never once faltered in its leadership. The men in the car sat in stony silence. Finally Jeff Meyer stirred, extended his hand briefly to Dad Barr. "'You'll cover things out here?' "'Don't worry about it.' Barr shook the hand. "'We'll wait to hear from you.' He watched, almost wistfully, as the huge man cut through the traffic and headed for the large glass doors. Then, with a sigh, he stepped on the starter button and snaked the little jet car into the stream of traffic moving toward the city. Jeff Meyer stopped in the great, bustling lobby and stared about him almost in awe. He had never been inside the Hoffman Center before, though he had heard of it many times and in many places. Since it had taken over the service of the huge metropolis of Boston, New Haven, New York, Philadelphia, the newspapers and TV have been full of stories of the life-saving and healing 
that had gone on within its walls. The disease research, conducted by specialists in all phases of medicine, who were for the first time gathered together under one agency, had startled the world again and again. But there had been other stories, too, not from the papers and TV, not these stories. These tales had come by word of mouth, a short sentence or two, a nervous laugh, a sneering joke, a rumor, a whispered story from a wide-eyed alky hanging over a bar. Not the sort of stories one really believed, but the sort that made one wonder. Several dozen white-garbed women moved across the floor of the huge lobby and talked quietly among themselves. Jeff sniffed uneasily. There was a curiously distasteful odor in the air, an odor of almost unhealthy cleanliness and spotless preservation. The lobby was a mill of activity. The elevators and interbuilding jitneys terminated here. People moved briskly, carrying with them the familiar air of hurry and vast pressure that infected the whole world outside. Jeff watched, spotting the corridor leading to the main administrative offices. He saw the elevators constantly rising to and returning from the huge admission offices. He noted the corridor twisting off to the staff living quarters. He stood silent, his quick gray eyes cautiously probing and watching. He tried to print an indelible picture in his mind of the layout of the building, and was almost floored by the hive-like bustle of the place. There was a complexity in the curved doorways and the brightly lighted corridors. Somewhere here he could find Paul Conroe. Somewhere in this maze of buildings and passageways was the man he had hunted for. Logic told him that. They had spent the night searching every possible alternative. His muscles ached and his eyes were red from sleeplessness, but there was a hot, angry glow in his heart. He knew that this was the only place that Conroe could have gone. Yet the place where he must be hiding was a place Jeff had heard of only in rumor, a place whose mention carried with it a half-knowledge of staggering wealth and almost indescribable horror. Someone tapped him on the shoulder. He turned, startled, to face a huge, burly man with a suspicious face and a gray uniform. "'You got business here, mister, or are we just sightseeing?' Jeff forced a grin. "'I don't know where to go,' he said truthfully. "'Maybe you should go back out, then. No visitors until this afternoon.' "'No, I'm not a visitor. I'm looking for the Volunteers' Bank. The ad said to come to the administration offices.' The guard's face softened a little. He pointed a finger toward a corridor marked Research Administration. "'Right over there,' he said. "'Office is the first door to your right. The nurse will take care of you.' Myers strolled toward the corridor, his mind fumbling with the rumors and bits of half-knowledge that were all that he had to work on stories of drunks stumbling into the emergency rooms and never coming out, tales of quiet, swift raids on narcotics houses, of people who never reached the police stations. But how could he make the right contact here? Research administration covered a multitude of meanings. He had read the advertisements for Hoffman volunteers in all the buses, in the copters, on the roads. Newspapers and TV had carried them for years. Meyer glanced down at his unpolished shoes, 
rubbed a finger over his purposely unshaven chin. What would they expect a volunteer to look like? How could they detect a fraud, an interloper? He shivered as he faced the office door. It would be a gamble, a terrible chance. Because with all the other publicity, no mention had ever been made of the Mercy Men. He glanced back, found the guards still staring at him, and walked into the office. Several people sat along the wall. A small, mousy-looking man with a bald head and close-set eyes had just sat down in the chair before the desk. He waited for the prim-looking woman wearing a ridiculous little white hat to put down her pen. She didn't even glance up as Jeff took a seat, and she kept writing for several minutes before turning her attention to the little bald man. Then she looked up and gave a frosty smile at him. "'Yes, sir?' Dr. Bennett asked me to come back today, the little man said. Follow up on last week's work. Name, please. The woman took his name and punched the button on a panel before her. An instant later, a card flipped down in a slot. She checked it, made an entry, and nodded to the man. Dr. Bennett will be ready for you at eleven. You'll find magazines in the lounge. She indicated another door, and the little man disappeared through it. Another person, a middle-aged woman, moved to take the little man's place before the desk. Jeff felt restless and glanced at his watch. It was almost eleven. Must she move so slowly? Nothing seemed to hurry her. She worked from person to person, smiling, impersonal, just a trifle chilly. Finally she nodded to Jeff, and he moved to the chair. "'Name, please?' "'You don't have a card on me.' She looked up briefly. "'A new volunteer? We're happy to have you, sir. Now, if you'll give me your name, I can start the papers through.' Jeff cleared his throat, felt his pulse pounding in his forehead. "'I'm not sure just what I want to volunteer for,' he said cautiously. The woman smiled. "'We have a rather large selection to choose from.' There are the regular mice and drug runs every week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You take the drug by mouth in the morning and give blood samples at ten, two, and four. Many of our new volunteers start on that. It pays six dollars and your lunch while you're here. Or you could give blood, but the law restricts you to once every three months on that, and it only pays thirty-five dollars. Or— Jeff shook his head and leaned forward. He looked directly into her eyes. I don't think you understand," he said softly. I want money. Lots of it. Not five or ten dollars. He looked down at the desk. I've heard you have other kinds of work. The woman's eyes narrowed. There are higher-paying categories of volunteer work, of course, but you must understand that they are higher-paying because they involve a greater risk to the health of the volunteer. For instance, we've been running circulation studies with heart catheterizations. We pay a hundred dollars for these, but there is an appreciable risk involved. Or sternal marrow punctures for blood studies. Usually we start—'I said money,' said Jeff implacably. Not peanuts." Her eyes widened and she stared at him for a long moment. It was a strange, penetrating stare that took him in from his face to his feet. Her smile faded and her fingers were suddenly nervous. 
Have you any idea what you're talking about? I have. I'm talking about the Mercy Men. She stood up abruptly and disappeared into an inner office. Jeff waited, his whole body trembling. Beads of sweat broke out on his forehead, and he gave a visible start when the woman opened the door again. Come in here, please. Then he was on the right track. He tried to conceal the excitement in his eyes as he took a seat in the small room. He waited, fidgeting. The woman packed up a small telephone on the desk and punched several buttons in rapid succession. The silence was almost intolerable as he waited, a silence that was alive and vibrant. Finally a signal light flickered and she took up the receiver. "'Dr. Schlemmel, this is the volunteer office, doctor.' She shot Jeff a swift glance. "'There's another man here to see you.' Meyer felt his heart pound. He shifted in his chair and started to take out a cigarette. Then he checked himself. "'That's right,' the woman was saying, eyeing him as if he were a biological specimen. "'I'm sorry, he hasn't given a name. Ten minutes? All right, doctor. I'll have him wait.' With that she replaced the receiver and left the room without a word. Jeff stood up, stretched his legs, and looked about the room. It was small with just a desk and two or three chairs. Obviously it served as a conference room of some sort. One wall held the panel of file buttons, another held the telephone and visiphone viewer. Over the visiphone screen a large lighted panel announced the date in sharp black letters, 32 April 2109. Below it the little transistor clock had just changed to read 11.23 a.m., almost noon and every passing minute his quarry drew farther and farther away. He glanced out the window at the rising tiers of buildings. Across the courtyard the first of the ward towers rose. To one side of it were a series of long, low structures with skylights. These were the kitchens, perhaps, or maintenance buildings. There were dozens of them, any one of which could be hiding Paul Conroe. Jeff clenched his hands until the nails bit his palms. He stared down at the buildings. Conroe could be anywhere down there. Another man had already seen Dr. Schlimmel. A door clicked behind him and he turned sharply. A man entered the room and closed the door behind him. Smiling, he walked over to the desk. Meyer nodded and watched the man. He felt a sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach. For the briefest instant the doctor had caught his eye and Jeff felt everything that he had planned to say crumble like dust around him. The man hardly looked like a doctor, although his white jacket was immaculate and a stethoscope peeped from his side pocket. He was tall and slender, almost fifty years old, with round, cheerful pink cheeks and a little pug nose that seemed completely out of place on his face. A harmless-looking man, Jeff thought, except for his eyes but his eyes. They were the sharpest, most penetrating eyes Jeff had ever seen. And they were watching him. Quite independent of the smiling face, they watched his every move, studying him. The eyes were full of wisdom, but they were also tinged with caution. The doctor sat down and motioned Jeff to the seat facing the desk. He pushed a cigar case across the desk to him. Jeff hesitated, then took one. I thought these were slightly illegal," he said. The doctor grinned. 
Slightly. Thanks to us, as you probably know, we did most of the work here on tobacco smoke and cancer. Actually, got legislation pushed through on it." He leaned back easily in his chair as he lit his own cigar. Still, one once in a while won't do too much harm, and there's nothing like a good smoke to get things talked out. I'm Roger Schlemmel, by the way. I didn't get your name." "'Meyer,' said Jeff. "'Jeffrey Meyer.' The doctor's eyes narrowed quizzically. "'I hope my girl didn't bother you too much. She channels most of the volunteer work here, as you see. Then, occasionally, cases come in which she'd rather turn over to me.' He paused for a moment. "'Cases like yours, for instance.' Jeff blinked, his mind racing. It would take acting, he thought, real acting to fool this man. The face was deceptively young and benign, almost complacent. But the eyes were far from young. They were old, old eyes. They had seen more than eyes should see. They missed nothing. To fool a man with eyes like that, Jeff took a deep breath and said, I want to join the Mercy Men. Dr. Schlemmel's eyes widened very slightly. For a long moment he said nothing, just stared at the huge man before him. Then he said, "'That's interesting. It's also very curious. The name, I mean. Oh, I can understand the attraction such an idea might have for people, but the name that's become so popular, it baffles me. Mercy, men. It gives you a curious feeling, don't you think?' brings up mental pictures of handsome young interns fighting the forces of evil and death, the brave heroes giving their all for the upward flight of humanity, all that garbage, you know." The eyes hardened quite suddenly. "'Where did you hear of the Mercy Men, I wonder?' Jeff shrugged. "'The word's been around for quite a while. A snatch here, a story there, even though it isn't advertised too openly.' Dr. Schlemmel looked him straight in the eye. "'And suppose I told you that there is no such organization, either here or anywhere else on earth that I know of?' A tight smile appeared on Jeff's face. "'I'd call you a Class-A liar.' Schlemmel's eyebrows went up. "'I see. That's a big word. Maybe you can support it.' "'I can. There are mercy men here.' there have been for several years. You're sure of that? Quite. I know one. He was a skid rower with a taste for morphine when I first ran into him, a champagne appetite to go with a beer income. Then he went out of circulation for about six months. Now he has a place up in the Catskills, with many, many thousands of dollars in the bank. Of course, he uses the money to feed several hundred cats in his basement." Jeff's eyes narrowed. He never liked cats very much before he left here. There are other funny things he does. Nothing serious, of course, but peculiar. Still, he doesn't need the dope any more." Schlemmel smiled and put his fingers together. That would be Luke Tandy. Yes, Luke was a little different when he left, but the work was satisfactory and we paid off. Yes, said Jeff softly. One hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Cash on the line. To him or his heirs. He was lucky. 
So, what are you doing here? I want a hundred and fifty thousand dollars, too. The doctor's eyes met Jeff's squarely. And you are a liar, too. Jeff reddened. What do you mean? Look, let's get this straight right now. Don't lie to me. I'll catch you every time. The doctor's eyes were hard. I see a man who's eaten well for a long time, wearing dirty but expensive clothes, who doesn't drink, who doesn't use drugs, who is young and strong and capable. He tells me he wants to join the Mercy Men for money. He tells me a lie. Now I'll ask you again. Why are you here?" "'For money. For one hundred and fifty thousand dollars.' The doctor sighed and leaned back. "'All right. No matter. We'll go into it later, I suppose. But I think you'd better understand certain things. It's no accident that your information on the Mercy Men is so vague. We've been careful to keep it that way, of course. The more vague the stories, the fewer curiosity-seekers and busybodies we have to contend with. Also, the more distasteful the stories, the more desperate people will become before they come to us. This we particularly desire, because the work we do here requires a very desperate man to volunteer." As he talked, the doctor brought out a pack of cards from the desk and began riffling them nervously in his fingers. Jeff's eyes caught them and a chill went down his back. They were curious cards, not their regular playing variety. These were smaller, with a peculiar marking system in bright red on the white faces. Jeff shivered and he was puzzled at the chill that gripped his body. He shifted in his chair in growing tension and tried to take his eyes from the cards. The doctor snubbed out his cigar, leaned back in the chair and gave the cards a riffle and regarded Jeff closely. We've done a lot here since the center opened. Work based on years of background research. A century or more ago there were terrible medical problems to be faced. Polio was a killer then. They had no idea of cancer control. They were faced with a terrific death rate from heart disease. All those things are beaten now, a thing of the past. But as the old killers moved out, new ones took their place. Look at the half-dozen NVI plagues we've had in the past few years, neurotoxic virus infections that started to appear out of nowhere twenty years ago. Look at the alky psyches you see in every bar today, a completely new type of alcoholism psychosis that we haven't even been able to describe, much less cure. Look at the statistics on mental disease, rising in geometric progression almost every year. The tall doctor stood up and walked to the window. We don't know why it's happening, but it is. Something's on the march, something ghastly and evil among the people. Something that has to be stopped. He gave the cards a sharp riffle and tossed them onto the desk with a sigh. We can't stop it until we know something about the human brain and how it works, and why it does what it does and how. We don't even understand fully the structure of the nervous system, much less understand its function. And we've learned all we can from cats and dogs and monkeys. Any further study of a monkey's brain will give us great insight into the neuroses and complexes of monkeys, no doubt. But it won't teach us anything more about men. 
His voice was very soft. You can see where this leads, I think. Jeff Meyer nodded slowly. You need men, he said. We need men. Men to study. Cruel as it may sound, men to experiment upon. We can't learn any more from any other variety of experimental animal. But there are problems. Toy around with a man's brain, and he is likely to die, quite abruptly. Or he may be deranged, or he may go violently insane. Most of the work, however well planned, however certain we were of results, however safe it appeared, proved to be completely unpredictable. Much of the work and many of the results were quite horrible, but were making progress, slow, but progress nonetheless. So the work continues. It hasn't been very popular. No man in his right mind would volunteer for such a job. So we hired men. For the most truly altruistic work in the world, our workers come with the most mercenary of motives. We pay for their services, and we pay well. A hundred thousand dollars is a small fee on our scale. We have the government behind us. The sky is the limit, if we need a man for a job. The money is paid when the work is completed, either to the man himself or to his heirs. You see why the name they have given themselves is so curious. Medical mercenaries, the mercy men. That's why a man must be desperate to come to us. That's why we must be so very careful who joins us, for what motives." Jeff Meyer stared at his hands and waited in the silence of the room. His eyes strayed once again to the curious cards, and the chill of fear went through him like a ghastly breeze. This was a port of last resort, a road that could end in horror and death. Ted Barr had said it wasn't worth it, that Conroe would never escape alive, but he knew that Conroe could, and he knew Conroe well enough to know that he would. Jeff felt the old bitterness and hatred swell up in his mind, and his hands trembled as he sat. He had long since thrown aside his life as he had known it, cast off the veneer of civilized life that he had acquired, to hunt Paul Conroe down and kill him there was nothing else in his life that mattered. It had been a long, grueling hunt, tracking him, following him, studying him, tracing his movements and habits, plotting trap after trap, driving the man to desperation. But there had been no indication, anywhere along the line, that Conroe would turn to such a desperate gamble as this. But he must have known that death otherwise was inevitable. Here he could be changed. He might disappear from the face of the earth in the oblivion of quiet death, to be sure, but he also might emerge, unscathed, to live in wealth the rest of his life, unrecognizable and safe. Jeff Meyer looked up at the doctor, and his eyes were hard. "'I haven't changed my mind,' he said. "'What has to be done to join?' Dr. Schlimmel sighed and turned resignedly to the file-panel. There are tests that are necessary and rules to be obeyed. You'll be confined and regimented, and once you're assigned to a job and sign a release, you're in." He leaned forward and punched the visiphone button. Tapping his fingers idly on the desk, he waited until an image blinked and cleared on the screen. "'Blackie,' he said tiredly, 
Better send the nasty Frenchman up here. We've got a new recruit. The visiphone snapped off, and Jeff sat frozen to his seat, his pulse throbbing in his neck, every nerve in his body screaming in excitement. The face on the screen had been clearly visible for a moment, a pale face with large gray eyes, a woman's face, surrounded by flowing black hair. It was a face that was impressed indelibly on his memory. It belonged to the girl who had danced the night before in the red light. End of chapter 2